minds with the chip inside Like a Lincoln digitized out Which prior to this was higher than science could ever devise This is a neural interface We're gonna stick it in your face Till it in your brain and interlace There's an arms war on and we're gonna win the race Leave everything a race, bring the base Welcome to Dangerous Minds, where we delve into the minds of biohackers, grinders, and take a closer look at the tech being implanted and developed by this community. Now, this is a special edition of DMP Tonight, where we're going to share a recording of a talk at the previous DEF CON Biohacking Village. Now, we're sharing this as a recap of great information that was presented and as a reminder that this same team behind DCBHV will be putting on another edition of the DEF CON Biohacking Village on August 9th through 12th, 2018 in Las Vegas, Nevada. Now, this year's a little bit different. DEF CON will not only be at Caesars Palace, but also half of it will be at Flamingo uh, Casino and Resort right across the street. So for more information about the DEF CON Biohacking Village, you'll need to go to their new website, which is villageb.io, or also you can think of it as Village Bio and be able to see all the new information there for this year, as well as key thing, today is June 22nd, 2018, and that means tonight, midnight, is the last, is the deadline for submitting a call for papers. So go there and submit your idea for a talk or workshop, etc for review and get some feedback on it. Plus, if you're interested in sponsoring the work that the DEF CON Biohacking Village is doing, you can go down to, there's a button near the bottom of the page that says click here to be a sponsor. Click there, learn about how to be a sponsor for the DEF CON Biohacking Village and help them do the work that they are doing to help educate and promote advances in biohacking, and medical technology. But before we share this special clip with you, we want to thank our sponsor, Dangerous Things, who delivers custom gadgetry for the discerning hacker and biohacker. So check them out at DangerousThings.com for more information. Now, if you or your organization is interested in sponsoring the efforts of the Dangerous Minds podcast, please feel free to reach out to us through email at info at dangerousminds.io, and we'll be glad to talk to you about it. Are we ready to start? How's everyone feeling tonight? Awesome. Couple last couple people coming in through the door. All right, we'll just get started. So, hi everyone. Uh, my name is Sydney. I'm from Montreal, Canada. I'm uh, one of the co-founders of NeurotechX. Uh, I have a, bachelor, a bachelor's <laughs> in psychology and computer science. Yeah, my name is Steve. I'm the founder of PuzzleBox. We make brain-controlled toys and games for consumers that are all completely open source. And I'm Melanie. I'm also one of the co-founders of NeurotechX, and I'm doing a PhD in cognitive neuroscience. So this is me and Mel's uh, first DEF CON experience, uh, so cheers. And uh, the last person who uh, contributed to help uh, for the slides in this project, um, 
<laughs> is uh, Hector. He's originally from Mexico, um, and he has a background in computer engineering. Uh, also, special thanks to uh, some of the members of NeurotechX that helped out, uh, Enzo and Nicola in Montreal, and John, who's right in the front over here. Uh, so a little bit about us. Uh, we're a non-for-profit organization, which is essentially trying to build a network of enthusiasts around the realm of neurotechnology. So for us, you know, we really want to be able to bring people together. You know, similar how there's communities in Python and other programming languages, we want to be able to bring people together who are passionate about working with technology and the brain. Uh, so we provide opportunities for people that, you know, are maybe a little bit newer to the field that would like to learn a little bit more and also have opportunities to learn things that are a little bit more advanced as well. Uh, we also try to work on a bunch of projects as much as we can together and uh, hopefully we can help to push the field forward in the realm of neurotechnology. Uh, we have a network that's been growing in the past year uh, quite, quite uh, to a quite a big scale. Uh, these numbers are a little bit out of date, but we're around 16 chapters right now uh, with about 4,500 members as part of our meetup. Uh, so just to give you a quick idea of the, the schedule, uh, first we're just going to talk a little bit about brain biometrics and then Melanie over here will be talking about brain stimulation. All right, uh-oh, ball of death. <laughs> ball of death. All right, uh, so I know what the next slide says anyways. Oh, okay, so we passed one. Uh, so uh, when I say the term biometric, raise of hands, who knows what I mean by that? Okay, so the majority of you, have, so I'll quickly kind of go through this part. Uh, still loading. <laughs> All right, so essentially, yeah, so for those who are not really familiar with the term, essentially what it means, it's using some form of biological trait to be able to identify you. Uh, there's certain advantages of using something like this uh, versus passwords or RFID cards, uh, obviously because there's something that's a little bit more unique about it and uh, much more reliable. Obviously, there's issues in terms of privacy and people gain access to your biodata that you may not necessarily want to have access to and the potential increase in assault if someone has to try and get into a system. There is uh, two categories that it falls under, physical, uh, which is essentially things like uh, measuring the veins in your palm, in your hand, uh, facial features, and the probably most well-known one, your fingerprint, and more behavioral ones as well too, uh, such as gait, which is kind of like the way that you walk, and even things like the way that you type, and which is in fact what Coursera uses to be able to validate you uh, when you're doing a quiz to make sure that you are the appropriate user or the appropriate person doing the quiz. There's seven factors that you should be considering. One, choosing a biometric for your own work or house. Uh, number one, universality. Uh, does every person identified for a system have this trait? Number two, uniqueness. Should, it should be something that's sufficiently different uh, from relevant populations so as to be distinguished. Number three, permanence. How permanent is the trait? Is it something that can change over uh, with age or the time of day? Uh, number four, uh, measurability. How easy is it to measure the biometric? Number five, performance. How accurate is the biosignal? Uh, how quickly can it be acquired? Is the tech robust? Number six, acceptability. How willing is the target population to use the biometric? And obviously, maybe the one that's most interesting for the crowd here, circumvention. How easy is it to simulate or fake the signal? So uh, bring it back to brains and the biometrics, or the using, uh, using your brain as a biometric, uh, it's something that's really getting a lot of popularity in the past five or six years, with a shit ton of articles being written uh, in 2014, 2015 especially, and over the past five years, 100 publications. 
Uh, one notable one, which uh, some of you might be familiar with uh, once the slide actually loads, is uh, an fMRI study, which was done uh, as part of the Human Connectome Project, which is essentially a project to be able to connect, uh, you know, figure all the connections within the brain. Uh, so it was something that was able to uh, uh, accurately predict if an individual was, uh, uh, it, it, you were looking at the right individual 98% of the time. So you'd have two different sessions and you'd be able to kind of connect the two sessions together, uh, specifically looking at a resting state when you're doing activities that involve the resting state, which I'll explain a little bit afterwards. Um, however, it is not something that's necessarily that you need to do with something that's a very expensive machine it's fine, uh, which is you know, an fMRI, uh, you can in fact do it with technology that is a little bit more accessible. Uh, so uh, Steve over here will explain a little bit more about that. All right, again, uh, we're just working out our slides here, but I'm gonna talk a little bit about brain-computer interfaces in general. So any sort of system like this is gonna use the brain for biometric. In fact, any kind of system that's going to use the brain as part of its uh, feedback loop is considered a brain-computer interface. And just to give you sort of a quick overview, when you think and move and act, there's messages that get passed back and forth between the neurons in your brain through chemical and electrical processes. So when a cluster of neur when a neuron, when the synapse in the neuron fires, there's a small amount of electrical energy that is released. Uh, it's on the microvolt scale, so we're talking millions of a volt, but you can pick this up at the scalp level using an EEG. An EEG is just a very sensitive voltmeter. So what we will do is put electrodes around different structures of the brain on the scalp that we care about, depends on what we're trying to accomplish. And we will read the electrical signals that are firing underneath. We get a nice little squ squiggly line coming out of that. The second step is you have to understand that we might care about a cluster of neurons that are, say, the size of a needle point. But once that signal hits the skull, it expands to the size of a dime. And once it gets to the scalp and the skin, it's now the size of a quarter. And that quarter is overlapping with all the other clusters of neurons in that region that we don't care about. So we need to do lots of analysis to pull the signal out that we care about from all of that relative noise. There's a couple ways we do that. One of them is, say, frequency analysis. If we are, say, we want to know how focused a person is, we will look at the spikes in their brainwave, and we will look to see if there is a consistent firing within a certain frequency range. So just imagine that EEG is a microphone over a drum. And when a message passes underneath, it's like someone beating on the drum. If we hear a steady drum beat within a certain range, that's associated with focus from the neuroscience. So in this case, we would do a bit of processing to try to eliminate some of the noise. And we are trying to pull out that feature, which in this case would be focus. Once we have that feature, we want to translate that into some sort of metric we can use, say, put it on a scale from 0 to 100%. How focused is the person? Once we have that measurement, we can play that back to the user. We can do it visually, we can do it physically, we can do it through any other method, which will then be perceived by the brain and the loop continues again and again. That is a BCI. So Steve here is gonna do a bit of a demo for us. Uh, so he's gonna get set up in a little bit. Uh, so uh, essentially, uh, just from here, we're gonna explain you know, a little bit about what type of brain activity uh, we're looking for and how we acquire the signal. Uh, so there's two main types of brain activity that we're trying to acquire. Uh, one is called neural oscillations, and the other one is called event-related potentials, or ERP. Uh, essentially what a neural oscillation is, is just a rhythmic pattern of activity in the brain. So if you were all to close your eyes right now, you would start to create a certain wave of pattern that would be capturable with uh, one of the devices, which is specifically, you would see a change in the uh, amplitude of the uh, alpha range. 
so uh, these are kind of like the standard neural oscillations that most people are familiar with. You probably heard of the alpha brainwave or the beta brainwave, uh, but these kind of correspond to different types of mental states uh, with the lower kind of frequencies uh, such as delta and theta being more kind of like an REM kind of sleep meditative state and beta being much more you're in a focus state. Uh, so this is kind of how we you know, build uh, some of the applications. The other thing is event-related potentials. Okay, so just taking a step back, another example of how we might use an ERP and a VCI, there is a signal known as the P300. And the easiest way to understand this is imagine you lost a car in a parking lot, and you are walking up and down rows of cars, and those cars, think of that as a random sequence. You're walking up and down the cars, and there is a whole cluster of neurons in the parietal region of the brain, that's just in the back here, that's the region responsible for pattern matching. And there's a recognition going on, that's a car, that's a car, that's a car, that's a car, there's my car. And the moment where it clicks for the brain and it sees something with personal meaning in that random sequence, there is a spike in electrical potential, usually approximately 300 seconds later, hence the P300. Now, the way this has been used in practice is say you have someone who is physically paralyzed, say with ALS. They can't move, they can't communicate. What you might do is take a grid of characters up on the screen, say they want to spell the word dog. Every once in a while, all the different characters are going to light up randomly, and every once in a while, the D is going to light up. And when it does, that's the thing that has personal meaning in that random sequence to the person. So every time the D lights up, there's a P300 signal. So after a couple blinks, the system is able to recognize, oh, every time D blinks, that's what they're trying to spell, D goes up, they move to the letter O. And in this way, people are able to communicate even without physical interaction. Uh, so just a little bit more explanation on the graph on the right there. Uh, this is essentially kind of how we map out the ERP responses. Uh, so uh, first thing before kind of going into more detail, what you should take a notice of is everything that's below the x-axis there is positive and everything above it is negative. This is just kind of the standard that's done in ERP research, so it's nothing beyond that. It's just the kind of way that they like to work with it. Uh, the other thing that you should take, in, uh, so going a little bit more into the signal here, uh, you'll notice everything that's in the positive range, for the most part, is P, which essentially stands for positive. So there's a positive response that is occurring uh, X amount of time after the onset. And everything above the X-axis is negative, so N. Uh, so when we're saying you know, P100, we're saying a positive response. And the number uh, that's afterwards, the uh, letter, corresponds where you actually see the signal. So say we provide the stimulus at point zero, uh, you'll, and if you see a peak at 100 milliseconds, then that will be the P100. Or in the case for what we explore a lot, the P300, it's around 300 milliseconds. But it's a range usually between 250 to about 400, 500 milliseconds, depending on the individual. So now that you kind of understand a little bit about the brain activity and you know, what we kind of look at, you have to think about how do we acquire that signal. Uh, so the signal acquisition for a very long time was done uh, primarily in research with kind of massive electrodes uh, or massive configuration of electrodes. So this is what most people think about when you're thinking about like uh, EEGs. Uh, so, you know, uh, a lot of them in a kind of a really dense uh, area. Um, the types of electrodes that you are in fact using, uh, you can get different types depending uh, what your use case is. Uh, so you could either have wet or dry electrodes and you can either have passive or active electrodes. Wet electrodes are essentially what I have here in my hand. Uh, it requires a conductive paste to be, be between the skin and the electrode itself. So you'll get something like 1020, which you can get a pack of, I think, about uh, four or five for about 50 bucks on Amazon. 
Uh, actually, even cheaper here in the U.S., so maybe a little bit less. Uh, so you essentially, the, the reason why you would want to work with an wet electrode is because you get a much better quality signal. Uh, the thing is with skin is that it generates a lot of resistance, and so therefore, if you have any form of conductive material, it makes it a lot easier to get the signal. Obviously, the downside of it is that you're going to have paste in your hair. Uh, so if this is something that you need to do every day uh, with the same participant, they uh, may not necessarily want to do it after the third trial or the third day. On the other side of things, uh, where's my wife? Uh, there we are. So on the other side of things, you have a dry electrode. Dry electrodes are essentially something that don't require the paste. Uh, they actually have kind of these pins on them that makes it a little bit easier to acquire the signal uh, uh, from the, the scalp. Um, but the obvious downside is that uh, you know, you're getting a much worse quality signal. But if you do need something that you want to do every day, dry electrodes might be a better option. But it really depends on you know, what you want to do. Uh, you also have the option of either passive or uh, active. Passive electrodes are just essentially the conductive material that runs through the wire that will then connect to the board. Uh, so a board like, where's my board? Uh-oh. All right. So there was a board. Oh, right in my hand. All right. So a board like this. Uh, so uh, working with a passive electrodes is much more beneficial if you want to use multiple of them because they're actually cheaper per electrode. Uh, but obviously, you have to be very careful in terms of, you know, not touching the wire too much as you're doing an experiment. Uh, you know, you don't want the wires to be too long. Um, and you just have to make sure that they're properly shielded. Uh, active electrodes essentially have the amplifier and potentially the preprocessing done right at the side of the electrode. Uh, so it makes it much easier to get a good quality signal, um, but the obvious downside is that you may have to work with less of them and they're much more expensive per electrode. So uh, now you understand how we actually acquire the signal, you have to actually know how to place them properly. Uh, there are certain consumer EEG devices out there that take that take care of that for you. But if you want to work with something that a little bit more uh, like this, uh, you'd so one uh, standard that you can work with is the 1020 International System. Uh, so uh, if you kind of look from the picture here, uh, every placement on the left side is uh, odd numbered and everything on the right side is even numbered. And the letter that corresponds to it is just essentially the part of the brain that it's over. So O, for example, stands for occipital. Uh, the reason why it's called 1020 is because essentially what you're doing do you, would you like to measure me? All right. So essentially what you're doing here is you're measuring from the front right over here to the Indian in the back right over here. I don't know how well people can see that. But you're measuring that distance there, and then you're either doing 20% of a distance from here to the first electrode, then 10%. But it really depends on the amount of electrodes that you're working with. So now uh, Steve is going to demo a feedback device, or like the full BCI system. All right, guys, so you won't be able to see this too well in the back, but you're welcome to check this out later up close. Uh, but effectively, what I have here is a standard consumer-grade EEG, just one electrode over the prefrontal cortex. And I have an interface here. There's a bit of a squiggly line. And if you can see it, if I blink a few times in a row, you'll see giant, uh, giant changes in that, in that signal. Those giant changes are actually EMG. Those are muscle, muscle noise. Uh, so EMG is an order of magnitude 10 times larger than the brain waves. But if you notice, even within that, the very, very small points, those are actual clusters of neurons that are firing that are able to be detected by this voltmeter. And so what this application does, which is, again, all open source, uh, there is a red bar that you can see that is a measurement of how focused I am. It is based on a rolling five-second average, and it is what percentage of the time did my brain, or at least my brain wave from the sensor, spend in the region associated with concentration. And the way this algorithm breaks down is between 40 and 60% is average, 60 to 80 is focused, 80 to 100 is very focused, and so on. 
So what we do with this is we tend to look at what a person's current range happens to be, and we use a little slider on the app to set a target. And I'm going to put mine right about there. And if I stop talking for a second, we will look to see if I can get my focus above that target, and that's going to send a signal to fly the helicopter. So let's give this a go. <laughs> so, and as you can see, as your focus gets distracted, the average starts to drop back down, the helicopter stops. What a show off. All right, uh, so, uh, so now that you kind of understand how kind of the full system kind of comes together, we can talk a little bit about EEG biometrics. Uh, so there's a couple different approaches that have been done in the literature from what we've discovered. Uh, number one is working with a visual stimuli uh, causing a visual evoke potential, which is essentially like an ERP, but with an external stimuli. Uh, so a couple of notable research articles that have been done uh, that could essentially be replicated is, uh, number one, uh, there was one person who did something in 2009 where they worked with one electrode uh, right at the CZ location, which is right about here, so, uh, where they flashed an image after an image after an image with a, a delay of about 500 milliseconds between each image, and they asked for a, per a person to look for a target image. So, in this particular case, they were working with nine images, and they asked for uh, the person to look for image number two. Uh, so with this in mind, they took that analysis along with the analysis of the non-target pictures that they were looking at, and they were able to use this to uh, get a person to be identified at a 97.6% accuracy. The highest uh, percentage that I did in fact find was at around 99.15%, uh, which was with about 61 electrodes and uh, 20 subjects and 40 trials, and it was uh, kind of like the same type of ask, uh, uh, task as the first one. The other type of uh, approach that is done is with resting state. So this is a little bit easier potentially, well the, the, the signal processing and the classification is a little bit more complicated, but uh, essentially what it is is that you would ask a person to sit in a room, you know, dimly light, very, very romantic environment, you know, minimal noise, uh, and just ask them to close their eyes for about a minute and capture that activity. So it's at about a, a freak, uh, sampling rate of about 200 hertz, so you'd be doing 200 hertz, uh, 200 times 60 uh, to get the total amount of samples. Uh, so in the experiment, they worked with 56 electrodes, and they were able, and with 45 subjects, they were able to get an identification accuracy of about 98.73%. And the potential reason why this is is because of the fact that at least for the alpha and beta rhythms, those neural oscillations I was talking about earlier, uh, carry individual specific traits, uh, which can be, uh, which are being claimed to be genetically induced. Uh, so there's a potential genetic element uh, within the neural oscillations. Uh, they also did some research, um, actually before I jump into the next part, uh, they actually found that if they worked with a configuration of three electrodes, uh, that's what gave the best results. So they only needed to work with three in the O1, POZ area, and O2, which is essentially kind of like back here uh, where this part is. Um, so the other thing that they also explored is if you can actually do an, a session, wait three weeks, and then try it again and see if you could still keep that accuracy, and they in fact did. So um, you might be asking yourself at this point, should I use this to be, you know, should I build my own system to be able to protect stuff at home or at work? The short answer is no. The long answer is no. 
But no, um, the real reality is it depends. It's something that is you know, really dependent on the type of activity that you want to acquire and the type of system that you want to put in place. So if we go back to the seven factors that we were talking about earlier, uh, number one, if we look at universality with EEG biometrics, um, you know, it really depends on the type of brain activity. Uh, if for some reason you were wanting to do something with motor imagery, which is the idea of imagining, for example, yourself closing your right fist, um, I think 30% of the population can't in fact do that type of task. So not everyone would be able to do it. Uniqueness, uh, I would say it really depends on the type of brain activity. Uh, for me, I'm not too familiar, you know, what would be better in terms of, uh, you know, something that's a little bit more unique, but I feel like there should be more studies that are done. Permanence, this is where EEG kind of loses its value uh, because of the fact that it is something that can change quite easily from different factors, such as if you're being, uh, if you're tired, for example, if you're stressed, uh, the time of day can change your brain activity. Uh, if you were to get a concussion, that can have some, you know, fuck up major shit. But, you know, it can be pretty bad. Uh, measurability, it really depends on the headset. You know, if you're working with something that's research grade, you'll get a much better result, obviously. And also the environment where it's being recorded, so you have to consider that. Performance, once again, it really varies on the, you know, what you're looking at, the hardware, and so on and so forth. And acceptability, you know, for me, I think it would have to have the appropriate form factor and design, uh, depending really on where it's going to be used. But for circumvention, uh, this is where I think EEG biometric really shines. Uh, because of the fact that it is a dynamic biosignal, uh, essentially meaning that you can get bio brain activity in different ways by doing different types of tasks, uh, it means that, say for example, one system were to get compromised, essentially all you would have to do is change the type of protocol uh, and you know, acquire a different type of brain activity, and essentially you could still use the brain as a biometric. So this kind of makes it very powerful for that reason. Um, the other thing, too, is that if you wanted to uh, test if it's a live signal, you could use something like an SSVP, which uh, Steve will explain a little bit more. Yes, yeah, so just very quickly, uh, if you had a light flashing very fast, let's say 15 times a second, if you look at it, part of the way your vision works is a cluster of neurons at the back of your head in the occipital lobe will harmonize to that. So if you have electrodes back here and you're looking at a light flashing 15 times a second, you'll pick up a 15 hertz signal. And if you were to redirect your attention to a light flashing 20 times a second, within a second, you would see a 20 hertz signal. This is almost completely unconscious. All you have to do is direct your gaze. So if you're running through one of these tests to have the person unlock, and then all of a sudden a portion is flashing, you can detect to see if you're looking at a live brain. Exactly. So uh, other things that you should consider as well, um, you know, if you really want to use EEG biometrics, leverage, you know, uh, potentially other biometrics to go along with it. Uh, so don't just use EEG uh, to be able to authenticate an individual, but do use the benefit that it does provide in terms of circumvention. Uh, I would also, the other thing you have to think about is that there's a lot of field testing that has to be done in this. It's being done in really controlled environments. So, you know, there are designs that have been done before with consumer EEGs, uh, which in fact were able to pair to a smartphone, and, uh, you know, you could essentially use something similar to that and just walk around and see what type of results you get in different environments. Um, the other thing, too, is it's not going to work with non-compliant participants. Um, so if you ask a prisoner, uh, you know, the most notorious one being Charlie Brown, um, you know, he, if you ask him to sit in a room, in a dimly lit room, and ask him to close his eyes for a minute, I really don't think you're going to get the results that, you know, you're looking for. Uh, so take that into consideration. So, uh, however, if you want to make your own just for the fun of it or to contribute, you do have that option. It is something that is, in fact, very possible simply because of the fact that the signal acquisition devices that are out there right now and the ways to acquire it through uh, via different types of software is all available for free. Uh, what's that? 
Oh, we have to go? Okay. <laughs> so, uh, you would, Steve will talk a little bit more about the hardware. Yeah, so just a couple quick examples. Uh, this is the NeuroSky MindWave Mobile. This is what I just used for the helicopter. This costs about $100. Uh, get you access to the raw EEG, but it's just one electrode. Uh, it goes over the forehead, and then you have a reference and ground that goes over the ear. Another example that came out about 2009, the mode of Epoch. Now this has 14 channels. This allows you to get more filtering for different areas. Remember we talked about the dime and the quarter, the ranges and so on. Uh, the only issue here, well the couple issues here, first of all it's $700. Uh, but also the, the placement of the electrodes is fixed and they're not necessarily ideal for what we are trying to do or some of the other popular BCI paradigms. On top of that, their licensing model for access to raw EEG is a little, little strange. Uh, they do have a cheaper version. It's about literally half the, just half the side of the head uh, for five channels, for about $300. Uh, stepping down again, you have the Muse from Interaxon up in Toronto. This is for five channels, again, across the prefrontal cortex. So you're not really getting anything different uh, as far as um, region uh, that you would get out of the NeuroSky, but you're going to get higher fidelity. Uh, but our favorite is actually the OpenBCI. Uh, so that's what we have over here. And effectively, a group over in Brooklyn took TI's ADS-1299 EEG chip, and they made a breakout board, added Bluetooth, a bunch of other smarts to it. And the really nice thing is that they publish absolutely everything about their product from top to bottom, schematics, firmware, software, everything is open source. And they've even chosen a license that would allow you to take their designs and commercialize them yourself without, with, without, without um, conflicting with them. So just looking at cost, if you wanted to use an OpenBCI today, the eight-channel board is $500, but if you wait a month, they have a four-channel version coming out next month. Uh, you can buy one of those for $100. Once you have the board, you're still gonna need the electrodes and maybe an apparatus to, 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 to set them up. You can find lots of guides online. Uh, we're using a construction headband. It costs $6 off Amazon. Uh, you could build this whole system for about $150. So very friendly to the DIY hacker. Um, so uh, before moving forward and you know buying the hardware and you know establishing your own uh, system, uh, make sure you do have a solid protocol. Uh, essentially, what I mean, make sure that you acquire the signal and you have a good system of acquiring it. Um, if you ever do need help with it, you know, reach out to your friendly neighborhood neuroscientists. A lot of them are very, very nice individuals, and I will be willing to help you. And uh, but you know, take into consideration to build a system, it may take you about six to twelve months. Um, and just to kind of explain, you know, the, how the importance of, of protocol is, uh, when we were trying to build something to be able to demo for you guys, uh, we were working with an N400 response, which was essentially looking at uh, your reaction to acronyms that you do know versus acronyms that you don't know. Um, so it's essentially what we learned from this is that uh, we did everything, you know, to the book, except we were not acquiring enough data. And this is where essentially where we failed. So, you know, make sure we were, I think we were recording three minutes of data when we needed to record 45. But there are uh, ERPs out there that have been used with the OpenBCI, which you can in fact leverage. And because there's research that have worked with that uh, paradigm, uh, you can in fact now build your own to you know, create your own secure system. Um, so if this is something that's interesting for you, if whether you want to try or build your own, uh, have an open discussion about the domain, or uh, integrate potentially other biometric standards uh, or frameworks, uh, to get started, number one, you can go to our GitHub, uh, and you can go to either BrainLock, which has some of the scripts there, and uh, a little bit more explanations. Uh, or if you're be beginner to all of this, you can go to Awesome BCI, which has a bunch of references there. Uh, you can also go to John's uh, GitHub as well. He has a bunch of really cool uh, projects over there, and Steve's as well, if you want to check out his projects. Otherwise, um, if you want to learn more about us, you can always go to our website at neurotechx.com. Uh, at the bottom of it, uh, there is a link to join our Slack, and we have a public channel now to discuss EEG biometrics. 
A special thanks to the team at DEF CON Biohacking Village for sharing this recording with us. Remember, if you're able to make it out to Las Vegas, Nevada for DEF CON in August of this year, it will be well worth the trip. For the panels, the topics are just a small portion of the action. With the activities of the networking available, uh, with the other attendees, it's the true payoff. So, our loyal listeners, if you would like to know more about this journey we take, please check out our homepage at dangerousminds.io or go to facebook.com forward slash dangerousmindspodcast. Keep in mind, events like these are listed on the DMP Google Calendar. If you have an event that you would like to add to it, please email us at info at dangerousminds.io. We'll be glad to add it to the calendar and share it with the community. Now, all of us here want to thank you for joining us as we explore further the tech and the people behind it within this fastly growing community of biohacking, grinding, and implantable technology today. If you like the programming that we share and the work that we're doing in the community, please support us by going to our Patreon page and becoming a sponsor at www.patreon.com forward slash dangerous minds. And please feel free to reach out to us with questions or comments. And perhaps one day we might talk to you about the work and or projects you're exploring and developing. Until next time, seek this spark. Scientific progression is steamrolling, there's no preventing it going ahead. Now we're intrinsically linked with technology, biology as we 